you know, something that I noticed as a very interesting phenomenon, because I'm on the West Coast, and I assume you were on the East Coast still, like, in, yeah. say, 86, 87? Um, yeah. Yeah, so I used to go to Palm Springs on spring break, um, and that's, like, a huge spring break scene with, you know, overrun with mostly Caucasian teenagers, and every year they always are blasting all these, you know, rock tunes. In the summer of, like, I think it was 86, every one of them was blasting License to Ill, the Beastie Boys album. And to me, that was such a definitive uh, turning point in just the whole white community totally embracing hip-hop and the Beastie Boys, License to Ill, was a big part of that. Uh, yes, because what you have is of America, in my opinion, is racism, sexism, ageism, and classism. And I think that when we underestimate the moment of ageism, so the racism is obvious, the, the, the sexism is pretty obvious, classism is pretty obvious, but ageism is the one that's totally underestimated. And when the new generation, and I would say again, they went way further than black and white. It went to, as you just said, younger white teenagers having something that they can relate to and embrace, which is what the DC boys become significant in, is kind of the gateway to, which people seem to still not pay attention to, the next executive is 17 at the time. He'll be the executive for X amount of years, and in X amount of years, for X amount of years. So by the time he's 25, he has a whole different taste than his father or his father's friends or comrades or whatever. So when those people take over the businesses or whatever, like as much of what happens with the music industry and anything else, they have a different agenda and a different thought process to it. So, uh, you know, now you get to see, you know, uh, things of, of, like publishing, if you understand anything about publishing, it's about to be commercials or whatever. The executives at those ad agencies are, are now older than them. So they come up with whatever their taste was. So, um, just like I remember it was groundbreaking that Pepsi did a Ray Charles commercial, that, that's because you have older people in Pepsi at the time. And then as the years go on, you know, you get the Michael Jackson Pepsi Association, then you move on, you get the Pepsi Spears, the Pepsi Association. So as a generation, you keep saying it's taking a generation, but you don't know who's the behind the scenes making those choices as a generation. As you get older, the new executive is coming from a different generation, which is why they make different selections for the people that they decide to have those slots. So it's very, very interesting to me that the ageism is underestimated. And uh, you know, young and teenagers are relating to the DC boys, and the DC boys loving hip hop the way they love hip hop because of the time when they came up at and the, and, and the musical influences they came under. Uh, you know, my, my, ironically, my guy Special K uh, was telling me about the DC boys because he would go down to NYU and I wouldn't say coach them, but he hung out with those guys or whatever. And when I listened to some of the records and I said, here's a record they're making, I'm like, they absolutely were listening to Grandmaster Flag and the Series 5 and Treacherous Tree. They were listening to that stuff. So they made references to me on a couple of their songs, or, you know. I guess they didn't like my report card, quite frankly, because I, I did a report card and highlight an ally, but I graded all the groups because that was one of the things that I was very, very uh, adamant about at the time. I was very adamant about putting the perspective on 
popularity or talent versus or talent over popularity. So why I didn't think that, you know, just because you sold the number one record and the best record that made you the best MC, I was always still trying to keep the integrity in what the uh, MC was trying to do as opposed to what the business was trying to do. Yeah, I fully understand. I, I definitely did the same thing with funk too. Um, but what uh, what was the uh, the situation with LL Cool J and you? What went what went down there? The same thing that happened again. The aging apart. Um, you're talking about a five year difference. Uh, him being five years younger than me, and coming up with the Run DMC Russell Simmons zone and. Uh, I personally, if I just take a trip to ego space, I didn't appreciate their whole, the whole crew, collective vibration of we're ending that old school stuff and this is the new style. And my position was not only is it not ending, I'm still here and I'm still prominent, which is the whole key to how you like me now. Can you said I can only rock lines and only rock clouds and never rock records, how you like me now? which was an absolute egg in my face because the record didn't work. So the whole point was, they said that we were good enough to rock crowds and we were good enough to rock lines or that because they came up under us and they knew what it was, but they didn't think we could make a relevant, so to speak, and I hate the term relevant, but they didn't think that we could make a current record that was there. Because most of the groups of that time, you know, again, Curtis Lowe, Grandma, The Flash, Jewish, Five, Funky Four, Treasure Two, all that stuff, they, you know, nothing was coming from them. So they were saying that stuff is dead. So as the as the last survivor, sole survivor of that era, my whole point was that is absolutely false. And to take that position, uh, you're not even better than me in my position with that goes. So just because you're more prominent or more popular doesn't make you better. So that was the impetus of the whole argument. Then it evolved into the content of what you're saying, which is why I put the book together talking about anything of any relevance, you have no uh, social relevance other than I'm great, I'm good, I'm bad. But where is your, uh, you know, Stevie Wonder, the world rabbit artist, social uh, fire, songs that feed the soul that move and motivate people. They can't just be how good you are and then say you're the best. And then I think we said I'm the greatest rapper in the history of rap itself. So, you know, we started making proclamations on top of, so it was like doubling down on not only am I killing the old school, I'm saying I'm better than all of them anyway. And then, when you get to the social space, remember we're in the crack era, and that's why it's a three-layer, I tell people like a three-layer cake. The one thing you say we're dead, number two you're saying you're better than all of us, and then finally, you're making references to, uh, don't you know you're just a worker and your boss is my man, you're making reference to drug dealers being the alpha male as opposed to the guys that are trying to work in nine to five and said, I'm only 18, making more than your pops. I'm like, that is some of the most destructive things that you could say to a young fan listening to you who, you know, father's probably, you know, just working nine to five. It might just be a construction worker. Who knows what he does? But saying I'm only 18, making more than your pops, and I hang out with drug dealers, I thought that that was so off-brand, so off in terms of the message he was saying, and then to say you're the best, I'm like, absolutely not. You can't be the best and take that position. That was my thought process at the time. This is so funny because we've we since buried the hatchet. And it was one thing, uh, 
and I just have trouble missing it when it's time. And I, when I get the next TV show that I wasn't on, I think I told you about that. Um, because he said something about him being younger, and I truthfully hadn't put that in perspective. He said that I didn't consider the fact that he was only 16 talking about that stuff. And that is absolutely right, because I'm looking at him uh, based on the prominence as a peer. So if he's if he 18 and I'm 24, I'm saying you should absolutely know better. But, you know, if he was 18, he was running around with some of the uh, most notorious drug dealers of time up in Holland and Brooklyn, and he was still impressionable by that stuff. So it doesn't mean you should get a pass, but I, too, understand it totally differently now. Yeah. Because, again, back to ageism. <laughs> That's the one thing that the, the, the detriment of ageism is you're walking in different time spaces simultaneously. So that was certainly one of the most famous, you know, rap feuds that, that you two had. Um, but then, you know, years later, I mean, it got so ugly with the Biggie thing and Tupac and all that. Um, right. You know, what was like your mental process when you saw things getting to those kinds of extents? Uh, that to me goes into what I call the racism party of the equation. I thought that there was a social engineering coming on. Uh, from a racist perspective where uh, in between that we have what I call the public enemy explosion. And what the public enemy explosion, enemy explosion did, in my personal opinion, is it puts conservative white America on notice that there's a movement happening and I think we live in a fear-based culture and in a fear-based culture it's very, very easy to scare conservative white America about quote-unquote, you know, uh, oh my God, the revolution, and check these voice made it sound like the revolution is actually happening. You know, uh, we are revisiting the 60s on steroids, and we're adding violence. I mean, we're adding aggression to it, musical aggression or whatever. So, oh, this wasn't here with a movie, wasn't it? Another single racist, isn't the place? What are they? What are they? Like, wow. You know, and have Spike Lee put that as a theme song? the lead theme song for his movie, Do the Right Thing, uh, at the time, uh, it crossed, it crossed public enemy over in ways they would have never crossed over just on their own. And again, the message and the pro-black content was so palpable that it was absolutely invigorating for young black America and intimidating for conservative white America. And it put us back into this powder cake space and I say again, with the social engineering, we immediately, conservatives, like whether they admit it or not, conservative label owners at the time, majors or not, started to speak out, okay, if we don't understand this music and we don't like it, it's obviously not a fad. It's 10 years deep at this point. Uh, they went from not playing rap records on the radio to playing rap records with profanity and beating out the profanity. I'm like, if you're going to, and which we all knew about at the time, payola and all that other stuff, how you get records on the radio, we all understood enough of the, of the excuses, and those of us that know understood enough about the industry that nothing just gets on the radio. There's a process to getting the record on the radio. And if we got all this gangster rap on the radio all of a sudden, and we actually, enough that, that we have a gangster era in hip hop, so to speak, on the radio, they're beeping out the profanity. If you're putting profanity in a record, simple now, simple common sense says you're not trying to get radio play. 
the quickest way to not get radio play is for profanity on the record. The fact that you got records that were on on mainstream radio even out the curses means that somebody wants that record played or those records played. So in my opinion, I call that social engineering and the counter to, okay, if we're going to have to deal with this music, then let's make it this way because at least gangs are talking about killing each other. Well, also around the time Public Enemy started, you know, doing what they were doing, you had, um, you know, in by 89, NWA doing, you know, Fuck the Police and, and um, Ice-T doing Cop Killer and stuff like that. So, well, I think they're not going to have with after, but in 89, you have NWA doing uh, Fuck the Police and the stuff that they're doing. They were still looked at as, you know, little underground. They still weren't mainstream. So it goes from, again, because a lot of things are happening too. You get the, the censorship thing, the explicit lyrics stamp, you know, the counters to hip hop is coming, and you got to put the explicit lyrics the sticker on it was a sign to kids to buy it, which is always backfired back in the 80s with that again. The elders don't know if like you're talking about protecting kids from the content. Soon the kids saw the explicit lyrics sticker, that's the one they wanted to buy. Like you have an option to buy the album, the clean version, or the sticker. The sticker outsold the clean version two to one and not three to one every time. And you could do the research on that and see that that was the case. And most labels understood that. So it got to the more explicit the content was, the more visual and more attractive it was to the kids because they wanted it that way. They didn't want the filter. So we started to focus on the language as opposed to the content more than anything else. And then when you make it, you know, the nomenclature of the era, when you make it a fashionable thing, so gangster became something fashionable, which coincided with the dress code and everything else. It got to the point where everybody was looking for a gangster album or a gangster record or a gangster artist because that became the next cool thing to do, which means it now became more about the image than it, did, than it ever did about the music. Yeah, well, I'm being on the West Coast, I mean, that was really super, super popular, the gangster rap. Um, <clears throat> I did like what they were doing musically, though. I mean, they were really deep, dipping into the funk for the gangster rap. Right, and that's where, uh, in my opinion, Dr. Dre makes his bones and becomes one of the most prominent uh, uh, influential hip-hop producers of all time, in my opinion. Because, again, the, the mechanics and the, the, the electric vibration, energy, frequency, and trying to consciousness make a difference. I think the vibration that he was tapping into was excellent. The frequency of what the gangster content was is what the problem was. Because a lot of times we're not paying attention to those things on that level. So a lot of times you don't know how the frequency is changing. What makes one thing cool in one era and then totally whack in the next era? And what makes something uh, whack in one era that's totally cool in another era, so to speak? Because mm -hmm. no one would think. If you take if you take it out in context and took it as a, as a human, uh, you know, and made it like an adolescent or a baby, so it was a baby in 79 and... It's a teenager in 94, and it's a grown man in the 2000s or whatever. You start to look at it that way or whatever. It's like, what made the recklessness of the gangster era so appealing at that era? Because the frequency was changing. It's just like a boy growing up or a girl growing up or whatever, and you're not aware of sex as a baby, so you're just having fun. And then at some point, you become aware of sex, so now you want sexual content. 
and even in imprinting, when you look at people's musical taste, your imprinting is usually about what music is, is prominent for you in your adolescence, because that's what will stay with you forever. So, Mo, let's get back to uh, your, your second album on Jive, um, How You Like Me Now, in 87. Yeah. This was probably, I'm thinking, was this your biggest seller as an album? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, you had one under your belt with Teddy Riley, and then uh, what did you do different on this one, and why did it blow up so big? Um, again, frequency, uh, timing, style. At that point, uh, Wawa West becomes the, the maker uh, record that uh, you couldn't see coming. Uh, my dress code, my style, the shades, and everything that I was doing, plus my tone and confidence, uh, I became like a person that even if you didn't know, you understood the backstory of how long I had lasted. And a lot of people still, to this day, when I, when I get into the face or whatever, you know, like I don't want to see myself serving, but I'm like, there's nobody else that's gone from the pre-record era to the early record era to what I call the golden years into anywhere near 98 things. So it's a, it's virtually an impossible feat to do to, to, to survive through those eras as a prominent artist at the time. So How You Like Me Now was a statement saying, okay, again, I'm asking you as a question, but I'm making a statement with the question. It's almost like a loaded question. Uh, so I think that energy in its own uh, resonated with a lot of people because, you know, I, I came from the space where they said it was really going to be a fad. So for everybody that said that, how you like me now? It's not a fad. For everybody that said it was old school, it was over. Well, how you like me now? It's not over. Uh, for everybody that said that we couldn't make records, but the records were good, how you like me now? You know, and not only that, the final stroke is, uh, Teddy Riley, which is the beginning of his career, quite frankly, uh, New Jack becomes the, uh, one of the dominant sounds of the era, and How You Like Me Now is the hip-hop version of the New Jack record. So again, How You Like Me Now. Like, it's not only the, the, the top genre of the time, it's the artist from the time that isn't supposed to be here. So the How You Like Me Now is really, really the in-your-face frequency, and Wild Wild West brings it home over the top because it becomes the record that even elders who didn't like hip-hop, that weren't really, really hip-hop, especially in the black community, it was like, I don't really like hip-hop, but I love Kumo B and Heavy D. That was kind of like the going statement of uh, 88, 89. And you had the support and backing to do some really nice videos. And Did you have fun doing yeah. those? Absolutely, because Jive Records uh, was a, a gift. At that time, it was a godsend because it created a separation that I never had before to be able to be taken seriously as an artist and have the artistry being shown on another level. I got a chance to do videos and things I never got a chance to do earlier in the uh, career or whatever. So it, it created a space where you now understand what the platform, what can actually be done. And did you go out on many tours during those years or uh, do a lot of, you know, personal appearances? Yes. Yes, the Dope Jam tour was the uh, biggest tour. Well, the biggest tour I was associated with was probably uh, the Budweiser Superfest with Al Haven. Um, and that was with uh, Hammer, uh, Guy, New Edition, Kubo D, and Karen White, and uh, sometimes Patty LaBelle. So, yes, uh, that was 
And um, I know you 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 won the first uh, rap Grammy, right? Uh, no, I didn't win the first one. The first I was first one nominated. Okay. Uh, so yeah, the, the first nomination class was myself, uh, Will Smith as Jackie Jefferson, first one, Salt and Pepper, JJ Fad, and LL Cool J. That's the first rap category. And and you also performed. So, uh, I guess later, not too long after that, I'm not sure what month, but uh, Knowledge is King came out that same year. Knowledge, I'm sorry, May. May, yeah. So, you know, on this record, you know, in your your appearance on the cover and the title, it definitely seems more than on the other two that preceded it that you're really trying to get across, you know, a positive message. Um, I just feel like you're more concerned about the overall message here than on the previous two. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Like that, like I just said it. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. So this record had "They Want Money." Um, I go to work. To me, I think go, "I Go to Work" was. I mean, that might have been your most hard hitting, uh, at least in terms of a hit song. longevity that nobody saw coming because it wasn't a big radio record. It was big enough radio, but it you know became like the aerobics class go-to and 
uh, you know, a lot of dance crews had, you know, battles on there, whatever. So the record had its own kind of longevity. And this record overall just seems more up-tempo than the other two and a little more intensity. Um, did you feel like that was happening in the studio or what? Uh, yeah, that's where I was. I was that's where I was as an artist because uh, I was, uh, remember, uh, I was in the battle zone. And my, my which is very interesting, and I want to make sure I get this on the record. My battle with LL was more my battle with the LL Incorporation, the, the, the stuff around him. Def Jam and Russell Simmons and Leor Cohen, they took a, a position where they were trying to make sure that they kept him ahead of me or kept me down or out of the loop. Of the, and I have letters, I can prove this stuff now. I'll be releasing my own book where they were writing, that, uh, not them in particular, but their publicist was writing to BET about what they thought and you know, what made sense and which way to approach, how to keep me out of the light, how to take me down and put LO in this spot or whatever. So that's the stuff that LO has actually nothing to do with. We're just artists doing what we do. But it's behind the scenes, people, where the real war, the real politics happen. So at, at the Grammys, um, there was a, uh, a publicist by the name of Bill Adler at the time who uh, went to the major magazines and took out uh, Modi's a sellout kind of campaign and tried to create a, not a blacklist effect, but really, really a bad kind of backlash effect on me for going to the Grammys. And mo and all those magazines were at the Grammys, which is hysterical talking about the, the flip around. But those, those magazines that they bought the time and the ad space for held their articles because they wanted to see how it played out because, uh, you know, the viciousness of the press is sometimes you want to be on the right side of things when it ends, you know. You're on one side of the Vietnam War when it happens, and then when it goes down, well, before it happens, and then when it goes down, it's like a Muhammad Ali thing. He looks like, a, oh, my God, you're a trap dodger. How can you do this or whatever? And then when more things come out, and three years later, he's on the right side of history. It's like, wow. We get it now. And then the generation that's coming up at that point doesn't want to go to war and send our soldiers back home. And they start to realize that the information is a little different and it's totally different from three years ago. So Ali gets reinstated. It's the same kind of thing. And I make a lot of parallels with myself and Ali, of course, because of boxing again. Mm -hmm. how, how did fame treat you, Mo? I mean, how did, what were the uh, pros and cons? And, and, you know, did you have to, try to, you know, keep things straight in your head at times? Uh, you said fame, F-A-M-E? Yeah, fame. Uh, fame is a weird double-edged sword. Because I never did drugs, I didn't even get high and stuff like that. I didn't have too much problems with it, so I didn't have a lot of issues on the, on the one hand. Uh, the most uncomfortable thing about fame for me is having other people speak on your behalf in terms of your mindset. What movie is doing is blah, 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 blah. And he's saying to himself, I'm like, I really, really hate that. I hate to this day when I see, when I see uh, uh, people on television talking about athletes and when they're negotiating their contract and they're saying, well, right now he's saying blah, blah, blah. It's like, but you haven't heard from him. You just had somebody that's speaking as a know-it-all on his behalf. I have always hated that. So even people who uh, spoke on the me and LL stuff or whatever, they had no 
idea what my mindset was. Like, nobody understood that as an artist, I actually thought LL was a great artist. I actually loved him as an artist from the hip-hop space. In terms of his message, I thought it was off-brand. In terms of him being better than me, I thought he was off-brand again. I didn't think that any of that was true. So when people were talking about the battle, and oh my God, he's jealous, and he just wants to have this position, or he just wants to sell, I'm like, that had nothing to do with anything. But there became a conversation where people were speaking their thoughts and telling you what I was thinking without having actually having a conversation with me. That part of things is frustrating, that's to this day. Yeah, I'm I sure that would drive you crazy. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. I'm like, that's not what I'm thinking. And I'm like, and and now we're in an era where, like you're doing, like, you can actually make a call. You can get a quote. Now, you can say you don't believe me. That's one thing. But you don't even get my quote. You just run off and freestyle and say this is what he's thinking. He wants blah, 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 blah. He wants to do X, Y, Z. I'm like, you didn't ask me. You can really ask me. It's very simple. Yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 when I hear, uh, you know, like the running lines of sports is like, whenever a player says it's not about the money, it's about the money. Like, you're just going to make that your thing. And that has nothing to do with what he said, but you're taking a cliche and making a cliche part of the court. Hey, who's who's your football team? Dallas Cowboys. You're no, no way. Yeah. That's my, t- <laughs> that's my team, man. Because I was totally thinking about Zeke uh, when you're like saying that, you know, and uh, I'm, a li- exactly. I'm a lifelong exactly. Cowboys fan, but I can't believe you're from Harlem and a Cowboys fan. Oh, my God, I hate the Giants. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I tell people again, and that's back to the ages of part. You didn't have to live through the Giants of the 70s, followed by the, because we didn't have ESPN back then. We had, you know, the network game. So you had the Jets and the Giants every Sunday. So in the Blooper Bowl, while the Cowboys and Redskins are playing the game of the week, we got the Giants playing the Packers, who they both sucked at the time, and the Jets playing, followed by the Jets playing the Patriots in the afternoon game, which is also the Cellar Bowl. So we would miss all of the great games, you know, and uh, the Cowboys by default, because I would get them a couple of Monday nights a year, Thanksgiving, definitely, and then they were in the playoffs. So... You can kind of get them, you know, in that time in that time of the season. But for the most part, you know, you're stuck with. Oh, and the NFC East at the time when they had five teams, and it, you know, I don't want to get into all that that much. But uh, you know, it was just yeah, the, the Car- Cardinals used to be in there. Yeah, yes, the Giants had to play the Cardinals two times a year, and and uh, you know, the Redskins were the Redskins, the Cowboys were the cream, the crop of the group. Uh, the Eagles came on a little bit later. But the Giants had to play the Eagles two times a year. And although Giants, Eagles, and Cardinals were terrible, and Cowboys and Redskins were creating the crop of the group. Then it flipped and the Eagles became good, and the Redskins weren't that good. But the Cowboys were the consistent tied team in the NFC East. And we had to, again, tolerate for the other. We didn't have any Thursday night football back then. Uh, you know, Monday night football, you could look for the schedule and see if Cowboys played two times this year. You know, that was it. So. Uh, what, very, very if you could see my uh, my office here on the wall behind me, there's a bunch of music stuff. But next to the music stuff is a bunch of cowboy stuff. So there's, uh, you know, the covers from Sports Illustrated of like Emmett and Troy winning the Super right. Bowls and uh, oh, all kinds yeah. of stuff. So. Oh yeah, you can, you can actually Google this. I think well, I have to continue the VHF tape board. I was like, uh, they have me on NFL Films because I'm at the Super Bowl. 
when the Cowboys are playing the Bills, and it's a little bit of close up of me jumping up and fist bumping and punching the air when the Cowboys win, uh, when they score that touchdown or that score touchdown in there. I got a Troy Aikman jersey, and I'm in the, I am actually, tell people, I said, of all the hip hop stuff I've done, I'm most proud of being on NFL films, pumping my fist for the Cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually my favorite video of myself. Uh, love that, love that, love that. Um, so uh, back back to rap. Um, so around the turn of the 80s to 90s, so you had, you know, the MC Hammer and you had Vanilla Ice and all this stuff. Did, right. did you know, it got so commercialized and so popped and popped out and, and things like that. Did, what was your sentiments, you know, for that kind of rap? Was ninety one when you came with um, Funky Funky Wisdom? Yes, the the death of my um, that was so much so much politics and, and industry shenanigans uh, behind that one that uh, that was uh, not even I wouldn't call it a swan song. I don't know what to call it, but it wasn't a good experience at all. The album wasn't even released. It released an unfinished album for political reasons because they had the I was going independent and I needed to, needed to deliver deliver uh, uh, an album to RCA to finish their deal. So they gave them an unfinished album and then I was playing catch up because I just had to go along with it because I was under contract. So what was it? It was just that they had changes in uh, personnel? Or what, what, why did things go sour? Just release their 
because they didn't want to be in breach of their contract. So they were, they were like, we have to deliver this album regardless. Like the album's not finished. It's like, well, it's gonna have to come out. And that was what it was because they needed to deliver it. So when they delivered the album, album wasn't finished. RCA knew that they were over. So it's like, well, why did RCA put anything behind this when you guys are leaving to go independent? Because Jive is turning into an independent label. So I don't have the content I want. I don't have the system that I would have had. There's no backing. There's no nothing or whatever. And then we're cutting pacing and you're throwing a, you're doing a little, a very little bit of money behind the last LL. This. I'm like, the LL, this is supposed to just be on the album for the last fans who care. It's not supposed to be. And they like, well, we'll put a video behind it because it's the only one getting any trend or any noise. They weren't very trending at the time, whatever the, the, the equivalent of trending is. Uh, we have now, uh, you know, told you that, you know, the only thing that we'll put money in if you want to do a video is the LL thing because we're getting a little bit of buzz on that. I'm like, that's buzz based on curiosity. That's, that's not buzz based on people liking the record. And, you know, it's not so when you're arguing with the machine. The machine is going to win every time because the machine has the money. The machine is spending the money. And then you quickly learn that ultimately, unless you're in sync with them, they are in charge of the boss. So that was an album that I, I very rarely talk about because it wasn't finished. Um, and you can even hear on the production, they lost their deal. Kenny Raleigh didn't get paid the way he wanted to get paid. So he was like, oh, I'm not doing it then. So, you know, the equivalent of a, a holdout, they weren't going to pay Kenny Raleigh the money. They weren't going to pay for the producers that I wanted because their philosophy was, although P-Rock may be harder or hotter, and, and Premier, we don't pay producers money up front on albums that we can't guarantee sales that we don't have to deal with. So they wouldn't do one off of independent deals or whatever. So I had to sit back and watch Pete Rock do uh, Down with the Kings, <laughs> Run DMC, uh, Premier do things with uh, Nas and other people that were up and coming at the time. So it was a very, very frustrating thing to be on the pole, know what to do, and then not have a situation that would back me. They even threw a track on their Gangsta Boogie to try to get on that trend. Right, right. And I said, okay, I know how to do Gangsta Boogie. And even in that, when you listen to the link with Gangsta Boogie, the whole point was I made it a fun Gangsta thing. And I would have definitely done a video for that for something like Uptown Saturday Night or something with a pinstripe suit. I would have done a fun kind of mockery of a Gangsta thing, but it would have been 1940s Gangsta. I wouldn't have done a Gangsta video. Like, they wanted me to do, like, you know, streets and guns and no, no, no. So, yeah, it was very, very frustrating to say, you're not letting me do the arts that I could do. So, it was exactly the opposite. Plus, there were new people in new regimes and uh, uh, new decision makers in the labels. I think, you like, what happens that people don't know behind the scenes. So, it was very, very frustrating. You did get to work with Chuck D and uh, KSR uh, one on that, though. KSR one, yeah. Well, that was a project that I had talked to them about because they're also Leo. So I said, you know, we got to do the Leo record, the KRS, Chucky, whatever. And Chuck was a good friend of mine, and KRS was a label mate. And at the time, I was a bigger artist than KRS, uh, so it was easy for him to just do a record with me. It's no problem. Because he never had any kind of pop exposure. And KRS was an absolute uh, solid street, quote-unquote, hip-hop artist that didn't have to he could do street without going gangster because he had enough credibility in that level. So, you know, it was a very, very, uh, for me, I thought it was advantageous shit or whatever. 
but they really, really just didn't. They didn't get the idea. They didn't support it. Uh, they gave me a little of a throwaway. So I had all these plans, and we had all these plans before the regime changed and before the tide shifted. And I said, I wanted to do a long form video, you know, the next level of the Canaan has been a long form video. That was a new wave of how to promote things or whatever. So, you know, they, they, they did a long form video on the same budget that they would have done a regular video for. And then complained about it like $75,000. And said, oh my God, you spent 75000 on this long form. Like, I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it was crazy. So yeah, it was terrible. It was a terrible space. I noticed Steve Arrington had some uh, credits on there. Did he, were those samples, or was that new? Did you meet him? Uh, I just did a record with Steve Arrington literally last year, um, but I, I I only admit him back then at that time for a quick moment. But yeah, those were samples. So all of a sudden you're without a deal. Uh, what happens next for Komodi? I started focusing on my hip hop Hollywood thing. Um, I had written scripts. Another thing that you know that I didn't talk about that uh, I was telling Jive at the time because again I always have visions that are bigger than the companies that I'm with. I'm saying you should do screenplays, and this is the stuff that they really really like them at the end, and almost like a painful ha 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 laugh, but without a payoff, because I said. <laughs> Myself and Ann Carly told them, and Ann Carly said, Will Smith is a star. I said, let me and Will Smith do the same thing, do a remake of Uptown Saturday Night, Bill Cosby and, and, and Sidney Poitier. Uh, I'll be whoever you want. I think Will has comedic stuff or whatever, so he can be the star. But we could do a movie, and we should do what Motown did with Mahogany and Lady Sings the Blues and be the first label to do movies with their artists. It'll be better for the artist. It'll be better for the label. You'll be looked at in a whole different space or whatever, and they couldn't get the vision. They couldn't hear it. So, two years later, Will Smith gets the fresh bits of Bel Air. <laughs> the rest is history. But down in 92. 91, 91. Uh, summertime was his last big thing or whatever, because they were also back there going into the Petty so yeah, it was a very, very frustrating time to be there and right at the epicenter of all of that stuff and tell them what I know uh, and knowing that we could have done what we've done. And then ultimately watching it Martin make bad boys and like, wow, we could have done that five years earlier and it could have been him and I. Not that I would have done the community first where Martin said, but I'm like, we could have created our own thing and done what we did to make it what we want to make it. And I knew we wanted to act because we, you know, very good friends and label mates at the time. So he would have loved to do it. He would have loved that Jive would have just stepped up and actually made films, but they didn't want, they had no taste for it and see the vision, they didn't understand it. And I'm like, it was the absolute thing to do and they couldn't see it. Yeah. What year was, what year was House Party? House Party was 92. Yeah. <clears throat> And you, you eventually did put out another album, though, right? Uh, that was like a favor for a friend of mine, my DJ, uh, my uh, early DJ. We started to try to make his label happen in, in, uh, in the South. That was in 94. Uh, when I thought 
tried to release me, but they didn't actually release me. So once we recorded it, they put a stop on the album and made them pay X amount of dollars to release some old masters that we were going to use, and then they actually made the official release. What do you make of where rap has come to today? I mean, personally, I, you know, I mean, I, maybe it's an age thing, I don't know, but as the 2000s came in, I became less and less overall engaged in, you know, most of the rap that was being done. Um, it's a byproduct of the timing, and it, it just, I would say uh, it became more corporate and less organic. Once the corporation gets in charge of it, it becomes something that they're manufacturing as opposed to something that's actually happening organically that people are vibing to. So, and then you have what I call entropy, a natural progress process of, you know, Michael Jackson's this brand new thing and it explodes. And then it's a trickle down, but it's so high, the trickle, you don't see that it's trickling down. You know it doesn't feel as hot, but you don't know what to do about it because it's entropy. The, it's like sitting in a, uh, the analogy I make is like sitting in a hot tub of water. The longer you sit in the water, your body acclimates to the heat, and then the water getting cool, cooler simultaneously. So that's a natural process that happens with artists and, and streaming and records or whatever. And then you become, you can become obsessed with trying to create that same level of explosion before. And then when the corporation is doing it, then it becomes very, very uh, uh, predictable and stale, kind of, because you're trying to go for something that becomes gimmicky. So it's about the same, pretty gimmicky or whatever. And the most organic stuff that came again. Ironically, it's when Dre finally left Suge and got away from Death Row. He created his own thing, uh, you know, uh, his next label. I forgot the next label. Um, uh, what was it? Aftermath. Uh, he dropped his thing on Aftermath. Then he dropped an M on Aftermath. Then Eminem dropped 50. And they, they, then you see what happens is that became the most prominent stuff in the industry. And because at this time, because of entropy, uh, most people are now trying to follow whatever is hot. And now we're in what I call the follower mentality. From social media all the way through, how many followers do you have? Like people want to be a follower and have followers, and nobody's actually leaving. So it's literally just getting followers for the sake of popularity. And the popularity is to get the numbers up, to make sure you can get the deal based on numbers, because we're all expectations based on popularity as opposed to anything to do with skill. Yeah, I just feel like most of the cats I hear nowadays just don't have the um, the flow. And they just, I mean, never mind, I'm not into a lot of the music either, but uh, because a lot of it is not very funky. And um, it's, I don't know, man, it's just not connecting for me. So. Yeah, but the, the, the thought process is not the same. The thought process is uh, reverse engineering without engineering. It's how do you get hot? It literally is that. It's not what do you have to say? What are you, what are you trying to get across? What are you trying to represent? It's whatever gets you hot. Because we're now back to the what I call uh, the socialism or the classism part of the equation. I had one guy, so, and I'm not going to say a, a popular artist, hip hop artist, son said, if you have a job, you're a loser. Like that's the mentality going in. They just want to be hot by any means necessary. And I don't care what the record is. 
If you throw your titties on the wall, that's your pod, then that's the best record. And then everybody will start trying to do those kind of records. Because they're trying to come up with a gimmick that'll, that'll work as opposed to having something to actually say. Do you feel like uh, you get the credit and respect nowadays that you should? Um, that's a kid 22 because I don't know if, I don't think history is celebrated as it should be in general. And credit has a lot to do with history and history has a lot to do with in being informed. And I don't think we have a generation of people that are really, really informed. Well, they talk about that a lot with the athletes too. That they don't really know, you know, what came before them. Right. What uh, What are you most proud about on what you've accomplished? Uh, as, as ironically, keeping my integrity, being able to do the music that I wanted to do, and make the impact and imprint that I did without uh, tainting my name. So again, no drugs, no alcohol, and all of that stuff or whatever, I think gave me the ability to stay focused and not have outlandish things in the equation. So uh, whatever it's, for whatever it's worth or whatever, I can always stand on the fact that, and, and not that I even like to use the term sellout or whatever, but I never gave into the industry pressures of doing the industry thing. I always did my own thing. And you're still doing your own thing. So what, what, I know you're working on that show and maybe just talk about that a little bit and also whatever else you have going on. Uh, yeah, yeah, like I said, uh, uh, within the last uh, 10 years also, 10 years ago actually, uh, I did a, a show called Spitfire. Uh, once again, arguing with a millennial. Uh, we're glad for the money they put up to get the show going and what we were trying to do. But the guy had a vision. Uh, that it was going to be internet as opposed to to uh, television. And I'm saying, again, I am old school. I understand TV money. You do the TV first and the internet as your backstop, as your secondary, second tier thing, because you could have both. You could have a television show that has go online after the show to see whatever, whatever. But behind the scenes, all saying you could have done that. But the guy that was putting the money up literally said nobody will be watching TV in 10 years. Yeah. Uh, two years, he said. This is 2008. Yeah. Nobody will be watching TV in two years. And I said again, as a counter, America, if you know anything about the corporation, is an investment space. Whatever they invested, they get. They're not making new, big, flat screen TVs because nobody's going to be watching them. Put <laughs> you out of your mind. So, you know, and uh, Companies are not spending the amount of money that they're spending on the Super Bowl to advertise through TV, which is what television is about. It's an advertising tool. A lot of people don't do the history, so they don't go for Back in the day, they would actually say, or do you buy Remco? Like they would actually say, tonight's show, we feel ball, sponsored by Remco, because that's what it was. The TV show was to keep you there long enough to get the advertising. It's the exact opposite of what we're looking at. You think it's about the TV show, it's really about the commercial. The advertisers control television. That's how they sell their products. You do not sell products. And again, they're trying to do it on the internet. It doesn't have the same kind of impact. Uh, it's actually more irritating, quite frankly, for me, because you'll be watching something on the internet, and then 
uh, you know, I, I guess it's Hindu marketing, you know, right there. And the next thing you know, and then the, it'll cut, and then the commercial for something that they're trying to sell. And for me personally, whenever you interrupt anything I'm watching on the internet, that's a part I absolutely won't buy. My own personal will tell you. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel you on that. I feel you on that. <laughs> It's like, a it's a bad it's user experience when they do that. Yeah. 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 So so what else? How can people keep up with what what you're doing? Um. Well, again, I'm very simple with Facebook, and I have a, a real cool one, the Instagram that my manager runs, and I don't run because he's very very frustrated. I watch it not because, but he's very very frustrated that I don't post and advertise whatever. I'm like. I don't want to do that until I have actually got something to sell. If I have a TV show to sell or an album or a record or something to sell, then I'll post it because I'm trying to get uh, eyeballs to that thing. Just being popular for the sake of being popular or posting or whatever. And people tell me, oh, you're so wrong. I'm like, I just have no idea or no desire to just post and sell everyday life as an event. It just doesn't work for me. I'm never going to do it. Oh my God, just these eggs look great. Friends, like, I'm looking for likes for people that like that meal I'm eating. You've got to be kidding me. It's too mundane. It's mundanity and sanity for me. So I just stay out of it. And like I said, when there's something to sell or something to talk about, then I'll be a little more active. But till then, I'll just stay low and stay underground or whatever. And I think, in a weird way, I think it creates its own mystique. Some people, I don't worry about being forgotten because I'm like, I have enough. Uh, in my own history and in my own legacy and in my own current state, so to speak, and I don't worry about being forgotten in that space. What, what was it like uh, working with some people like Quincy Jones and, and the Isley Brothers and some of those guest spots that you were able to do? Uh, well, Quincy Jones is the uh, experience of my lifetime, hands down, because I'm a big person for knowledge and, and insight. And Quincy Jones is literally like the uh, walking human version of Yoda. Uh, the level of information he has, the level of experiences he's had, uh, from the jazz era to the Michael Jackson era to the Will Smith on the TV show, uh, which a lot of people don't realize that Quincy Jones' company is behind, first since the Bel Air or whatever. Uh, he's a wealth of information. So when I'm around, I say Mr. Jones, I'm around him, it's literally just shut up and listen. Take it all and do as much as you possibly can. So that's uh, uh that was the experience of my life. And I grew up again, the iconic people, uh, Steve Wonder, Earth and the Fire, uh, uh, I grew up with, uh, I should say, those are people that I loved and couldn't imagine as kids being in the studio with and working with or whatever. That uh, I just have a, a very, I would just call them all the study students, the best way to put it. I love being able to work with the people that I came up under. I love. Well, talking about Q, just uh, sum it up a tremendous uh, uh, crash of thunder here. I don't know if you can hear that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, uh, Mo, it's been fantastic uh, getting this history with you and talking about your great career and all of your uh, great insights. Much appreciated. Hey, back at Truth and Rhythm headquarters. Thank you for joining us on another magical ride with Truth and Rhythm. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, thank you so much for your continued interest and support. Be sure to subscribe. Go to YouTube. Go to the Funkin' Stuff channel. 
That's where Truth and Rhythm lives and breathes and thrives. Also, goodies here like TIR Quick Takes. And if you subscribe, you know what? You get the show before anyone else. It's free. If you love jazz, funk, R&B, soul, you can't miss it. Pass it along. Tell a friend. Tell family. This audience is growing, and it is a beautiful thing, all coming together for the love of this great music. Also, if you can throw us a buck or two, we could use the support financially, keeping the lights on, keeping the servers going, all these expenses. If you can help support the program, whatever you can give, much appreciated. Go to the funkinstuff.net website. And on the right-hand side of every page, you just click and you can donate through PayPal, credit card, whatever. Very easy to do and so much appreciated. And if you do a sizable donation, I will mention you on the program. Also, drop me a line. Email me at scottg at funkinstuff.net. Let me know who else you'd like to see on the show, what you enjoy about the music. Let's just kibitz and uh, talk about stuff, you know, talk music. You'll find that I respond very quickly, and I much enjoy the uh, rapport and the camaraderie and the interaction. Always remember, this is your show, The True Music Lover. So for now, that's all the time we have for this one. It's a wrap. As always, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one. <laughs>